Did you know that Nika AATC offers self-paced online courses on a growing range of topics aimed at helping you improve health outcomes for people with HIV? These interactive courses can typically be completed in about an hour and cover multidisciplinary topics such as smoking cessation in people with HIV, geriatric assessment and integration and models of care, managing difficult behaviors in HIV care settings, and using Zoom as a virtual workspace. Self-paced online courses are offered on RISE, Nika AATC's online learning platform. Courses are designed for healthcare providers providing patient care for people with HIV, including physicians, physician assistants, nurses, pharmacists, case managers, outreach workers, and other disciplines. To explore online courses for HIV care professionals, navigate to www.nikaatc.org slash rise-courses. That's www.nikaatc.org forward slash R-I-S-E dash C-O-U-R-S-E-S or click the link in the podcast episode description. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, I'm sitting down with John Farragon to talk about some of the top stories of 2023. Thanks, as always, for joining us, John. Yeah, thanks, Mariana. Happy to be here again. Um, I just looked, I think it, this is our 124th episode, so uh, so big deal, right? We're, we're, <laughs> we've done a lot of these, so thanks, We've Mariana. done a lot of them, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, John, as we finish, you know, and come up on the end of the year, this is 2023. Let's talk about some of the top stories in HIV that we've discussed and covered and maybe even talk about topics we haven't covered. What are some of the highlights that we should remember? Yeah, so I think this is a good opportunity, again, to kind of step back and and see where we've been this year. And, uh, you know, the HIV field is always changing, as we know, although you know, the changes are not as drastic as they used to be, but although you could argue that some of the things that we saw this year were pretty impressive. Um, but I thought, um, you know, this is just my opinion on what the top stories were. If you're listening today, you might have different opinions on what was important this year. But I think one of the most important studies that we saw results from this year was the reprieve study. So for those of you who don't know, this was um, the large study that was designed many, many years ago, really to look at statin therapy. Um, for people who are living with HIV um, who have low to moderate risk for cardiovascular disease. And basically what they wanted to see is if treatment with patavastatin, which is one of the statins that we typically don't use commonly nowadays, but um, it is one of the newer ones and does have a favorable drug interaction profile. Um, But they wanted to see if this would reduce the incidence of heart attacks, strokes, and other major cardiovascular disease events in patients. So what they did was um, they conducted this, this randomized trial and it's it's called the randomized trial to prevent vascular events in HIV, which is the which is the reprieve. It's what is what they um, what they call the study. Um, it's currently one of the largest, actually the largest uh, randomized HIV trial to date, which is sponsored by the NIH and ACTG. Um, Twelve countries in North America, South America, Europe, and Africa and Asia. So again, multinational um, uh, program, and they enrolled just under seventy eight hundred people with HIV. Mm-hmm were 40 to 75 years of age on stable ARV therapy, and they all had to have a CD4 count of um, of over 100 cells. And about a third of the patients were women. Um, patients had no prior history of cardiovascular disease and had to have um, 
some comorbidities in, in labs, and particularly cholesterol and triglyceride levels, that would put them at low to moderate risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, so of note is that this population really would normally not qualify for statin therapy. And I think that's an important piece, Mariana, is that the, the people who are getting statins in this study typically would not qualify if you use their ASCBD risk, for, risk score, which we often use. So they were randomized basically to take either, either um, uh, a patavastatin or a placebo once a day. And then they were monitored over time for cardiovascular events. And then they basically watched these patients over time to see what happened. And uh, patients patients were also monitored for statin side effects and drug interactions. And, and again, as I said, patavastatin has a favorable drug interaction profile. So you don't see a lot of um, drug interactions with that med. So that was not an issue. So um, in fact, the, the DSMV, the Data Safety Monitoring Board, actually remembered stopping the therapy early or stopping the study early because they really showed that the statin arm was showing a clear benefit. So um, people with HIV and patavastatin had a 35% lower risk of major cardiovascular events. So they stopped the study. And so again, I think there's going to be more to come um, uh, come on this uh, next year. There's uh, more data, I think, you know, because this this happened, the study was actually done in the middle of COVID as well. So there's some COVID outcomes that they looked at. There's some renal outcomes. There's other things that are going to be looked at and published and presented, I think, over the next coming years for um, uh, for the reprieve study. So that to be interesting. It'd be interesting to see what actually pans out in the long run with all of these different different cuts of the data. Were there any other key studies that came out this past year? Yeah, so next, I think, um, was an important one was the DOXY-PEP study. So this was a, one that we did cover, I know, and I know we covered the, the, the reprieve as well. But this was actually um, looked at at Croy, and it was also recently um, subsequently published in the New England Journal, I think in March or April of last year, of, of 2023. And it looked at people at high risk for sexually transmitted infections, and it gave people either kind of standard of care compared to giving people doxycycline um, 200 milligrams within 72 hours of their exposure um, to see if there would be a reduction in STIs. And looking, particularly looking at gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. And they randomized um, men having sex with men and transgender women. They were taking HIV uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, so they're on PrEP, um, and who had had gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis in the past year. And they what they did in this study is randomly assigned people uh, from a two-to-one ratio to take either 200 milligrams of doxy within 72 hours after condomless uh, sex or kind of received standard care without doxy. So basically it's like, so you either got the doxy arm or else if you didn't, you kind of someone who just would, you know, if you had unprotected sex, you wouldn't take anything. But if you got an STI, you would go to the clinic every three months and get STI tested. And if you're positive, then you would then you get treated then. So they didn't like not treat people, but the the intervention arm, the two to one arm, the two, the double, the, 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 the twice as many patients got doxycycline in, in the study. And then they follow people over time. There's five, a little over 500 participants, um, mostly white patients, um, and um, about a third patients were Hispanic or Latino. So in, in the in the prep cohort, the people who were on prep, the STIs were diagnosed in about 10% of patients of the visits, and in, in the doxy group, and then um, in the quarterly visits, it was about 32% in the standard of care group. So that really means it was like almost like a tripling, or at least you know three times as many patients had. Had a uh, had an STI in the patients that got the quarterly visits compared to those who got the the uh, the doxy. So a relative risk reduction of of, of zero point three four is the relative risk, meaning that there's about a um, a sixty six uh, percent reduction, so two thirds reduction in STIs of people who actually were on got doxy in, in the study. So again, it's very interesting. But um, I think even even the people 
um, living with HIV, the STIs were diagnosed much more frequently in those patients who actually just had quarterly visits versus those that got doxypep. And again, a very similar hazard ratio of about 0.38, which means about you know, um, 62% of people, 62% reduction in the in the incidence of STIs. So again, so it's very important, I think, for people at high risk for STIs. It offers another option for people um, to proactively treat potential STIs after an expected exposure. Um, just need to be cautioned about who we recommend this for. There was actually a study in females, which I'll cover in a sec, but you know, that actually didn't work as well. And also there's some also concerns concerns for, for uh, resistance from gonorrhea, which has been shown in some of the French studies that have looked at this. So there's also a study looking at the doxyvax trial that also, also, also looked at doxycycline, but it also added the, the, uh, a meningococcal vaccine as well um, to uh, one of the meningococcals, the 4C and MenB vaccine is the one that actually covers uh, uh, gonorrhea. And they were actually able to show that there was not only a reduction in, in STIs, but also it actually um, provided some less risk of resistance to gonorrhea. So it, re it reduced the risk of first gonorrhea infections in half. So not really reducing resistance, but more reducing that, that risk of first gonorrhea, gonorrhea in half. So they gave them, them that 4C men vaccine at zero in two months or the doxypep uh, after sex. And the bottom line is the, <laughs> the combination of both the doxypep and the vaccine, we also resulted in a significant reduction in STIs. And then there was a separate resistance study from the San Francisco study, which, which was the, the doxy-PEP study, the first one we looked at, uh, looked at 56 gonococcal GC infections and 17% at baseline, um, 17 at baseline and 39 on follow-up and found no resistance in tetracycline. So again, we're not looking, we're not seeing a lot of resistance and also with staph aureus, very, really no change in MRSA rates. So again, I think from a resistance standpoint, the small samples that they have so far, this doxypep seems seems encouraging. So the bottom line here is, Mariana, I think you're going to see some changes potentially in the guidelines. We'll have to see if this does pan out um, in some of the, I want to say some of the um, the public comment is out there for some of these guidelines about you know what's going to be in there potentially. And doxypep was actually added. It's it's in the New York State DOH um, guidelines now, um, and so I think you will see people on doxypep um, 200 milligrams 72 hours after. Um, after sexual exposure, but just know the concern with resistance, some of the gonorrhea rates may actually be reduced by actually using that that four C men B that meningitis vet that that um, that meningococcal vaccine uh, may actually potentially help to 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 ameliorate some of those problems. I know that Croy is an important conference that happens each year for HIV care providers, and we did cover it extensively on the podcast earlier this year. Was there anything that came out that, you know, is worth mentioning as a top story for the year? Yeah. So I think on this one, I think, I think is an important one, but I, and again, people could argue, but I think one of the things we're looking at with patients who, who, who are receiving antiretroviral therapy, can we do something to provide long acting therapy? So we know we have cab, uh, ropivirine, long acting injectables, right? We have even lenacapavir, which is more for true and experienced patients, but I think that that labeling will change over time. But one of the things I think was an important story, and I'm just going to share this real quick. This was the, the looking at these uh, these broadly neutralizing antibodies. So this was also presented at Croy, looking at lenacapavir, um, which is, again, the, the capsid inhibitor in combination with two infusions of these different BNABs, these broadly neutralizing antibodies. And they looked at um, uh, tiropavimab and zinlirvimab. These are two different MABs that are actually broadly neutralizing antibodies to HIV. Um, now they're very, you have to be very, very, you have to be um, kind of susceptible to them. So there are some testing, which is involved to, to try to do that. 
And there's not a lot of patients that actually wind up being susceptible to both of them. So again, it's a, it's a, it's a small number of patients that actually got, a lot of patients got screened out and couldn't, couldn't receive this, but they enrolled 21 people with HIV, viral suppression for at least 18 months. Um, T, T cells had to be over 500. Um, and they never had a, had to see, had a, had a CD4 count below 350. And they basically received an oral loading dose of lenacaprivir, which is what you do. You do 600 milligrams on day one and two. But on the first day, they also got their two sub-Q injections of, of lenacaprivir. And they got two um, IV infusions, uh, sorry, an IV infusions of, of, of terapavimab uh, or um, zinlivimab. But they used two different doses for zinlivimab. So it was kind of like a double randomization. But the bottom line is two infusions, two sub-Q shots two oral pills on day one, on day two, just two oral pills. Then they followed them for six months. And they said, what happens at six months? And the vast majority of people, 90% of these patients remained biologically suppressed. So, you know, there was one person who actually withdrew from the study. One patient actually failed and was able to resuppress on, uh, on their original regimen. So again, not much of a risk there, uh, but the patient was basically set for six months. So you can imagine the obvious question is the cost of these drugs and scale up. And we don't really know that yet, but clearly this isn't going to be a cheap therapy. But over time, if we can scale this up and we can have patients who um, could potentially get two infusions and, and maybe a long-acting sub-Q injection, you could potentially have this be a, a, a six-month regimen for people to keep them suppressed from an HIV standpoint. So we'll have to see what, what this means and, and also what it means not only just for treatment, but also for prevention as well in the future. But I think this is really, I think, I think in my mind, when you think about the future of HIV, of how this could really be done, you know, it's one of the options where you could really kind of potentially have um, a couple of infusions and a couple of sub-Q injections, and then basically you'd be set for six months, really would revolutionize the treatment of HIV. What about people who aren't virologically suppressed? Were there any studies this past year addressing treatment for them? Yeah, so I think the final piece for 2023, I think is an important one, is, is the use of the long-acting injectables in people who are not virologically suppressed. And this was, um, I think we all have thoughts on whether we should do this or not. Uh, but a lot of this data was brought to light in, in, um, in at, at the CROI meeting, data from San Francisco, the Word 86, um, which evaluated long-acting capropivirine from Dr. Gandhi's group um, from June 2021 to November 2022. Um, in this study, they actually used off-label capropivirine. Um, there was no requirement for them to be biologically suppressed. They basically said, you know, we want you to just come in every four weeks, you know, you provide your contact information, accept outreach from us, and then basically they would they would follow these patients and put them on calbopirin, even though the even though they weren't suppressed. So again, that's off label, that's outside of the labeling. Um, but they did it safely, and and basically they followed patients very closely. And now, because they had some a couple of virologic failures, they now actually look at resistance a little more closely now before before they do this. But they looked at a total of 133 patients, 76% were undetectable. But the 57 who were detectable had viral loads that were detectable. When they used, when they had these detectable patients, um, and they put them on therapy, 55 out of the 57 of those people actually got suppressed. So really good, really good, good numbers. And and I guess what I would say, many of you know this, but the the you know the the this population is very difficult. 98% for public insurance. A third of them were using uh, stimulant uh, medications. A 40% had major mental illness, and and so. It's just amazing that out of the 57, 55 of those patients actually achieved virologic suppression. So this is really kind of a proof, proof of concept that this can really work. And um, so, so this has also been done in Jackson, Mississippi, and there were some other cohorts that have reported similar success that were reported 
um, uh, at, at some of the meetings later in the year. So I just want to make sure that people know that when the San Francisco data, there was two patients that failed with resistance, but likely had some degree of resistance at baselines. That's why they kind of changed the protocol. But just a reminder to check resistance testing first. And also, if you're switching people who are off of other regimens, be sure to check for the presence of um, hepatitis B virus and particularly core antibody and surface antigen prior to switching off regimens. Because obviously, if you switch them from a hep B contained regimen onto something else, you know, that would be a big concern. Now, for patients that are not taking their meds, it's one thing, but if somebody's suppressed and they're on a, a TAF or TDF-containing regimen and you switch them to something without TAF or TDF, you have to always think about the potential issues around um, hepatitis B reactivation. So, so, I, so I, think, um, I think this study is interesting. It is not, not recommended on the guidelines. I want to make sure that's very clear for everybody. So using capropivirine in patients who were viremic is not on the DHHS guidelines as a recommendation. They don't recommend this. Uh, but again, it is being done in some places, and there has been some some success so far. I also want to warn people, too, that it's really short follow-up. We don't have like two, three-year data yet. So I think when you get out and look at these patients long-term, I think that's really going to be the question. Can these patients, although they can come in for the first three or four visits, you know, will they come in for, for a year, two years, three years, every single month? And again, this was done every monthly here. Will they do that? And I think that's really, really a big question. So I think, Mariana, when we think of the EHE plan and what we need to do, I think there's often little to offer patients who just won't take anything orally. And I, and I think they often are by remix. So by doing this off-label, while it's daring, I think it really is likely the reality of what needs to be done for some patients, right? Um, and if we can have some success, it might be worth it. I like um, this ID blog from Paul Sachs. He's on that that journal watch ID blog from the Wingland Journal. It's very good, but he, he said something to this effect, like if the, if the alternative is untreated and progressive HIV disease, and then maybe we need to kind of look at this um, and stop discouraging the use of, of this drug in people who are viremic. But again, it's early. We have to really be kind of have a, take everything with a grain of salt, you know, just watch things uh, closely as they, as they pan out. But I think while there may be some different perspectives on, on this, I think it's just another option for us for some patients and it may, it may, there may be some data now that suggests that, you know, this might be able to be done safely. But again, you know, I think it's really early. I think we have to continue to watch the data and see what actually pans out. As we begin to wrap up, mm -hmm. what else do providers need to know as we close out the year? Yeah, so just a few other stories from 2023. I think, uh, I think we saw some really good data from the Deravirine Aslachivir studies. And if any of you know that they're trying to work out that Aslachivir dosing, there's a couple different dosing strategies. It looks like there's a lower dose is going to be where we're gonna, they're going to go and that those studies are ongoing and being redone. Uh, we saw some long-term BF-TAF data with no resistance, I think, five-year data, which is encouraging, which again, potentially some weight gain and some other, other now not everything's perfect, right? But we saw some really updated data from from the H HPTN uh, treatment and prevention, or the prevention studies that were really encouraging, especially in, in subpopulations that were being looked at. So the bottom line, lots of new data supporting medications for treatment and prevention. I think there's a lot to, 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 um, uh, to look at, but I think these are all tools in the bag for us, for EHE uh, trade, so to speak, and to try to make a difference in trying to reach those EHE goals by 2030, I think really is our ultimate goal, not only from us as an ATC, but also for treaters that are out there doing this work. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about some of the highlights of 2023 data. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. 
That's www.necaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at necaaetc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at necaaetc.org. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for a wonderful year and for following along as we share knowledge here with the HIV care community. We wish you a happy holiday season and a fantastic new year. Stay safe and we'll see you on the first Thursday of 2024 for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.